Welcome to Hard Sell, a podcast where my friend and I give each other the hard sell on a piece of media that we enjoy, such as a podcast, a video game, a set of albums, or a sports documentary. My name's Cody Morin. My name's Tim Bloom. And I'm Cozy Hanula. So, I touched on this a bit last week in my pitch to you, Tim, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I was curious, and we may have talked about this before on the show, I don't remember, but... uh, I want to know what you both wanted to be when you grew up, as it were. Because, as I mentioned in my pitch, I grew up, like, since I was first able to get on a PC through near the end of high school, thinking, like, I would definitely want to develop video games for a living. I took (laughs) summer courses through the University of Minnesota on, like, modding and developing video games. I made (laughs) games in Game Maker Studio. I was getting catalogs of courses uh, for DigiPen Institute mm-hmm. of Technology, which is like a video game development college. Right. Um, dreaming about like what I could do if I took those courses, took any available coding classes I could in my high school, and then uh, finished the textbook in the first like week of the course, and then spent the rest of the time like goofing around making my own text adventure games that were really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, I was fully set on it for a long time. Uh, and then uh, I was reading some interviews near the end of high school, and there were multiple people who were like who had gotten out of the industry talking about how burned out they were, uh, <laughs> not even wanting to play games anymore mm-hmm. because they got so burned out. And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound very fun. Maybe I'll just mm-hmm. play them and do other stuff instead. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm just kind of curious what you guys wanted to do when you were growing up. Sure. I mean, Cozy, you could go first. You're you're more or less doing what you wanted to do, right? Well, I'm doing what I wanted to do as of high school. Uh, when I was like a kid, I wanted to be a teacher, but I feel sure. like that might just be because I was a teacher's pet, and that was the only profession <laughs> I ever saw up close. And I was like, that'd be great. I love school. I want to be at school all the time. Yeah. Uh, God, then I sort of realized... That was not maybe the path for me. Uh, I did like I was like a camp counselor for a long time with theater camp for kids and stuff, and I was like, this is exhausting. Uh, uh-huh. It's fun, but it's fun for two weeks in the summer, and then you get to be done with all the kids, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, maybe teaching's not for me. I briefly uh, thought I wanted to do quote unquote business. Um, <laughs> not clear what that meant. I really liked just like making Excel spreadsheets. I thought that could be a career, obviously. Mm. Uh, I mean, my, I mom, mean, I still make Excel spreadsheets. I love it. I still like making yeah. Excel spreadsheets, but it's like like not ninety percent of my job or anything. Yeah, fair. Um, guys, so, are we losers? Yeah, <laughs> we hopefully sure. like Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I'm not even gonna, yeah. So, anyway, yeah. my mom made me take, like, a intro to business, like, camp thing. It was, like, a day-long, like, what is a business person, like, what do you do if you major in business kind of a thing? Like, just, like, a, what is this major or this profession like? And I was so bored. <laughs> I was like, this yeah. is not for me. So, I was trying to find something, like, because I kind of want to do something like creative because I was like, I like drawing and I like doing like theater. Like I like some like creative stuff more. And I also like more technical stuff like Excel spreadsheets and like different <laughs> math and whatever. Like those kind of classes in school, which is how I landed on architecture. 
um, in high school and I went to like an architecture camp and I really liked doing that. So yes, that is still what I do. Yeah. I, I've vacillated. I, d- I didn't have like one thing that I wanted to do forever. Uh, my parents love telling the story of like when I was four or five, I was at some thing with my dad and like some of his coworkers. One of his coworkers like leaned down and asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And my answer was tall. Uh, that did that obviously didn't work out for me um uh but then you know i went through different phases i wanted to be a firefighter like many young kids and then quickly realized that i wanted to wear the costume and be adelized uh you know adorized what is the word idolized idolized Idolized, thank you adored and idolized (laughs) um uh but i turned out that that is mostly not what they do um that that went away. There was a time where I wanted to be an English teacher. I was like very heavily influenced by an English teacher I really liked. He wasn't trying to get me to become an English teacher, but uh, I thought he was very cool. And I was like, this is a dream job. And then realized I also don't want to work with kids. Um, wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I think that's the thing we maybe talked about. There was a brief time mm. I flirted with being a stand-up comedian. Brief time I flirted with being like a sports journalist or like sports agent or some sort of like sports business person uh but i think sort of similar story of like everyone who talks about that is like my job is already pretty i work pretty unpredictable hours relative to a lot of jobs um and i'm always on to a certain extent but i think sports is even more like the demand for those jobs is so high that when people jump, you say how high. The people working in, like, sports admin jobs work 70 hours a week every week and love it, and that's what it takes. And it's just a little, uh... I was like, yeah, I don't love sports that much. Rather have sports as a hobby that you follow and not not the Correct. whole thing. And see, that's... Yes. That's what I always find so interesting about, like, what people wanted to do, because for me, it was... Even outside of video games, like, I always knew... I wanted to do something with computers. Didn't really care what exactly it was, whether it was like, and I've done, you know, a bit of like development and like hardware work and different stuff like that. And so, uh, but I knew that that was kind of always what I wanted to do and that never really changed. So hearing, uh, you know, people who had like 10 different things that they flopped back and forth between from time to time i always find really interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but uh the obviously the reason that i bring all of this up uh, is because in our last episode tim i pitched you uh the wow diary or the world of warcraft diary which was a development journal on the game world of warcraft so i will let you take it away with your review of that book yeah, so like you teed up last time, the WoW Diary is a it's a diary. It is a like recollection and writings of what it was like for John Stats, who was basically a level designer. I'm forgetting what his actual full title was, but he basically was responsible for designing dungeons in World of Warcraft. So there are pieces where you like group up with other players and do particularly difficult content that is like sequestered from the world and his entire job was just like designing the the physicality of those dungeons and so this is his 
account of what it was like, I think for I think for the three year span. I think it starts in two thousand one, I if I'm remembering correctly, yeah. and then ends when the game publishes in two thousand four. Yeah, because I think he joined um, the company in like two thousand and then started keeping a diary like six months in. Yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. Um and it's interesting. There there's a I alluded to it a little bit when you pitched it, but there's there is a sort of long intro where he like goes into detail about what the book is and he speaks to like it's not a narrative, it's not like a documentary or an expose. It is it's not a it is just like my experience it, like the thing that comes clear through the book both that he says pretty explicitly in the intro and that is obvious is he has like an unbelievable amount of admiration and respect for his team uh for himself uh he has a very very high opinion of himself <laughs> and his work which like you should you should you yeah. should have a high opinion of like the work you do so i don't that came off cattier than i meant it but i do mean it a little catty but we'll get to that um uh, and of Blizzard as a whole. He's very, very, very pro-Blizzard, um, I think, to this day. Like, I looked at his blog and stuff like that. Like, he, despite eventually getting fired by Blizzard, <laughs> um, well, laid off. You know, it's one of those, like, once you're a high enough executive, the difference between fired and laid off is razor thin. Uh, yeah, so I, I think, think he, he calls it. Laid I off. think he calls it fired at one point in the book, but also the entire project he was on was canceled, so, like... You yeah, uh, uh, I don't know. yeah. Hard to hard to say exactly, but but it's clear this book. I I think like it is not. It was not designed. Maybe it was. The, the truth is, what this book was is like a love letter to the making of WoW, uh, to the people who made WoW. Um, and so I think it's interesting. It is like a as somebody who has spent years playing World of Warcraft like we talked about last time it's a it is just like a pretty fascinating first party source of what it is like to make a game like this especially a game like World of Warcraft that was really like a first of its kind game the idea that like there's a whole section in the game where like even the people making it or in the book rather where even the people making it couldn't quite wrap their heads around the idea that everyone playing would have to be connected to the internet all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, like, that being a novel concept uh, for, like, an MMO like this. It's, it's not the first MMO. It's not the first always online MMO. But it is the first one to, like, hit in a way. And the first one to get the kind of backing in terms of dollars that Blizzard gave it. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a super interesting account of a game like this that would spawn an entire industry. Like to this day, people are still making wow likes, uh, to attempt to compete with it. And I think it's, it's interesting from like a historical perspective there. Yeah. Cause there was other big games out at the time and like coming out. Um, they talked a lot about EverQuest, uh, which was kind of. It, yeah, the most recent really big hit before WoW came out. Um, mm -hmm. But like, it's just so interesting reading that they really they have some expectations of like what they think the game will do, um, and it's just it's so interesting reading, you know, in 
2023, almost 20 years after the game came out, like, hearing their thoughts about thinking, like, oh, we we would love it if we hit, like, a million subscribers and the game lasts five years. And now mm -hmm. it's 20, almost 20 years later, the game is still running. They peaked at 12 million subscribers. Um, like, it's, it's just so interesting. And just, like, reading all of the different things that they, like, ideas that they had during development that led to it being as big as it was, whether on purpose or, like, inadvertent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. So because this is not a narrative, mm. like it, it, it really is. It's written like it's it. It is written in complete sentences. It's not literally <laughs> like bullet points. Yeah, but it is basically like the way the book works is there are months that are called out. Sometimes I think occasionally there are weeks, but in general, it's just sort of like February. 2002 and then it is just sort of like a write-up of what happened in february 2002 and then he will occasionally use months to like expound on a specific what development was like for a specific part of the project whether that is like narrative or uh architecture or character models or x y and z um and the way it is written is very like this person worked on this thing. Then we did this, and then we ran into this problem, and this is how it eventually happened. And like it is, it's not. Uh, it's a diary. It is a diary of what happened. So it, it, there isn't like a, a whole lot of through lines, and so my notes don't have like a lot of through lines. I have like a bunch of scatter bullet point yep. notes uh, that I will just run through. Uh, first thing that fascinated me right away uh so he was one of the first employees not of blizzard but like that was assigned specifically to the wow team he was like number 20 ish mm -hmm. roughly i believe um and he mentions right away like fairly early goes into they were having trouble hiring people like finding people willing to work on this game especially people with like experience like quality applicants who were not like him who were just like randos yeah. who uh had had off work experience that they were going to take a chance on in the same chapter he his reasoning for like why it is difficult he lists a bunch of like industry factors that i have no idea if they are true or not yeah. uh things like that i will take his word for like he's the expert i'm not but things like that, you know, they hadn't announced what the project was. They At the time he is writing this, or at the time, like, this is taking place in 2001, WoW would not even be announced as a thing for a full year. Uh, so you're trying to get people to sign on for a project they don't know what it is uh, for a type of project where it's really hard to find experience. It's hard to find 3D game creators when at that time there weren't a lot of 3d games in existence let alone <clears throat> 3d pc games let alone 3d pc games that would be require like networking and infinite play time at that like it's a very specific you know when you're doing something new you there aren't people who have experience doing that thing sort of by definition mm -hmm. um i'm sure that's all true he also describes a working condition in a, like, barely lit basement surrounded by 
people who he describes as being so socially inept as like not being able to hold eye contact <laughs> with you regularly. Uh, he also, I don't know the details on all of these people, but like through the book, he, he like fairly painstakingly like names, like full names, the type of people he's clearly like trying to give credit to the full yeah. team and trying to highlight everyone's contributions. Uh, my estimation is of like the 60 plus people on his direct team, at least 50 plus are mid thirties or above white guys. Uh, and at least 55 plus out of 60 would be men. Um, probably more like 58 plus. And so I'm sort of like, and also he describes working constantly, like working constant hours in these tiny basements surrounded by this. I'm sort of like, if you are doing this, you are also limiting your pool of applicants to a tiny, like yeah. who wants to be the one woman in that environment? I, if I, like, if I was working at PR, uh, I am often the only guy working in various situations uh i've worked at an agency where of 12 employees i was one of two men but like it's different for men and women and it is especially different for the culture that he will later go on to describe that i'm sort of like he it doesn't even seem to cross his mind that that might be a factor and i think it it's a again it's a fascinating like first party source uh, of like how these people think about these topics and he's thinking about it as a game developer of why would other people like me not want to apply for this job what what would turn me off and he's not even thinking about people who are not like him and like these other factors that might matter it, like it doesn't even cross his mind to consider it and I think it is it's it's just such a like 2001 game developer perspective right. uh that it was super interesting to read. Yeah, because I mean, they talk. He talks about how they they go into like crunch times where, like, it is mandatory that you work at least two, sometimes up to five days a week, uh, of late hours, meaning sometime between ten p.m. and midnight, and then also mm -hmm. him and uh, like a number of other people voluntarily then coming in on Saturdays and Sundays to continue working for more long hours, um, like easily hitting like a hundred hours a week on some weeks. Yeah. Uh, it's regularly like, for years, yeah. for like years at a time. So I, <laughs> he, he goes on a, a side note where he says, I moved to orange County. He moved there from New York. Uh, and I lived there for four years before I saw the ocean because he only, went from home to blizzard and back and did nothing else if he did anything else it was because it was a team activity and had no life and no <laughs> he had no family no friends outside of blizzard just this i'm like oh my like you've created an environment where only those type of people can thrive and there's not that many there's people not, like there's so not that many people of course you will have trouble can hiring. both thrive in that environment like mentally but also have yeah. the skill, the very specific skills that are needed for this particular project. So like, and, and, and the people who, who could also be in that same hiring pool are the type of people 
who would get very passionate about the project. And there's a good chance that a lot of those people are working at the time for another game studio, working on a game that they're passionate about and wouldn't want to leave. So like, it's just, yeah, your, your, I can understand certainly why they had a hard time hiring for certain positions uh, and why they would often hire from QA testers because a QA tester would be a much right. easier position to hire someone for from off the streets. And then because you need no experience. Right. And then once really. they're already in, they know the culture and like what is going to be required of them and being able to hire, like, promote them up from there you're gonna have a lot easier time doing so like trying to hire outside that qa is one of the like most thankless difficult jobs in games so i think it's it's not that hard to find a qa tester who wants to do anything else (laughs) yeah no disrespect to qa testers but like that is not a job that many people like dream of doing no, and so like it's it's all kinds uh, of stuff like that that you know going back to the to my intro that like these are all the kinds mm-hmm. of things that I read in books like this and stuff that make me think like boy am I glad I did not try to like develop games and like go work for someone like Blizzard where like I might be expected to work these sort of nonsense hours cuz it's it's just yeah. it's so much. And then just the way that like employees are treated afterwards, like that he he talks about how it's it's uh, industry standard that companies will at the end of a project fire their developers to avoid paying out bonuses to them for like profitability and stuff like that, but then also potentially mm-hmm. rehire them for the next project if they're if they still want to come back. It's <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. It's. It's fascinating. And the truth is, like, I... So I know a little bit about game development because I listen to a lot of, like, game development industry podcasts. They're not, like... Not like this. Like, this book will go deeply into the nuts and bolts Mm -hmm. of game development, but about, like, the culture of game development. And it's fascinating how that has evolved of, like, that would no longer be acceptable today. The idea that you would have a full staff that you just fire or lay off immediately before bonuses pay out and then rehire them... Instead, people do it the same. They just call it freelancing. <laughs> like, you would just hire a bunch of freelancers instead of full-time employees. Yeah. And then there's no expectation that they would ever get... Bo- which I guess is technically better, because there's no expectation yeah. that they would get bonuses. Then you fire them, but it's still, like, <laughs> built on... At, at the end of the day, game development was and remains... Game development at AAA studios, generally remains built on the exploitation on on exploiting uh people who are too passionate and not willing to stand up for themselves yeah um, cause, i mean they talk a lot about the, like, their is... hours on the weekends it's not because it's required it's like that they're so passionate about it that like if if they don't come in and do the work and do all those extra hours the game doesn't get pushed back those features just don't make it in and so if they're like that passionate about trying to make the game as best as it can be, which is good for the company too, like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not to go on like a capitalism rant, <laughs> but the, I could do a whole like hour long thing of like, this is why like the intersection of like art and capital 
makes this like a fundamentally toxic thing of like you can't they are acting like they own this and the truth is they don't like they if you're an artist and you do this and you work these hours then it is your thing to mm-hmm. have and they they own none of it they have no rights to any of this and it is uh, uh you know if if we learned that in another country there was a like the way that this worked is like famous painters employed interns who they paid uh, and who agreed to this, but who like did the paintings and then the painters published it under their blizzard. And then those names, you know, they were listed in the acknowledgement somewhere, but just like went away, uh, didn't get any benefit from it beyond just like the salary mm-hmm. they were paid. Um, we would call that crazy. But like that is how game development. If you think games are art, that is a, I think, appropriate analogy for games development. And the idea that like. Again, there is no sociological thought in John Stat's head. He just does not think at that level. I think then or today, to be honest, like when I think about it, he thinks about his experience, like heads down, his his wanted to do, like all the other stuff kind of just comes out in the wash, which again, yeah, probably is a healthier mental place to be. <laughs> Uh, probably gives you less anxiety, but also uh, makes you more vulnerable to this kind of uh, exploitation where you work 12 hours a day, six days a week for a company for years, then get laid off. Um, but anyway, uh, okay, I've got more on the culture to say, so we'll we'll get to that later. Um, I think in general, though, the culture he describes at Blizzard is one that is very... Uh, horizontal. The thing yeah. he clearly loves about it is the idea that, like, everybody has roles. Everybody has jobs they're supposed to do. I think he, he spends, you know, 60 of the 80 hours a week that he works working on his job. But that there's there was always, like, freedom to banter back and forth, to, like, uh, discuss different things. There's there's I don't know that he ever says this verbatim, but there's a very, like, we're all a family vibe to all of this it's and he loves that he loves that like they're all friends they all know each other they don't do anything other than this uh it's a he describes hiring a 3d programmer who worked in japan who had said quote i hated working in japan everyone woke worked in rows of desks silently all day and no one questioned their boss if you were given five weeks to do a task then that's how long it would take and now I am sort of like, that sounds like effective project management. <laughs> if, if, if your boss tells you a task will take five weeks and then it takes those five weeks. Now, now I also get what he means. I have worked at companies where it just sort of felt like everyone was sort of a mindless worker bee and you just show up and do it. And I get that that is also like, I get yeah. what he means. Um, but I also am like, you know, they're it's possible there might be a middle ground where your relationship to work is somewhat healthier without also just having a total emotional detachment from what you do. Like this is not an either or thing, John. And I think he has, he, and I think all of the other, I, I think he is a very, I don't think he's exceptional in this way at all. Have like characterized it as like, it's this way or, or 
nothing. Like, how, how can you rationalize in your head working 80 hours a week? You have to believe that all of the other options are worse than that. And so, like, they've got to be pretty fucking bad to be worse <laughs> than that. Uh, so, you know, I think he's got an idea in his head of what most studios are like that I I bet every other studio also thinks about every other studio. Which, I mean, he talks about in his intro to the book that, like, his hobby outside of his work in New York was developing levels for, uh, I don't remember if it yeah. was Quake or, I think it was Quake. Uh, I think so. And so... You know, in his mind, like, that's still what he loves to do. Now he's just getting paid to do it. And it's what he would do with his all of his extra hours anyway. So, like, why not just keep doing it on the game that you're getting paid to make anyway, I guess? I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... I, so, I mean, it, good for him that that's he found, like, and he landed on a project that he could be that passionate about. Um, but, yeah, it's it's... Yeah, again, he he speaks of this only yes. as a good thing. Yes. And this is this is after having been fired by <laughs> <Yes>. Blizzard, still <laughs> only considers this like a positive experience. Or maybe not only considers it a positive experience, but like in in the wash it considers not even like would do it again, but like enjoyed it, loved it, happy to do it. And it is again, it's just one of those like y- you can only find a certain type of person who will mm-hmm. want to do this. And, like, I fundamentally believe your output will be worse if you only fill your organization with the same type of people. Like, research bears that out of, like, you want diversity, not just of demographics, but also of, like, worldview and life experience and opinion and things like that within an organization to create a good product. And the way that Blizzard worked, and I think the way a lot of game development worked in the early 2000s, is you needed this very specific type of guy. You needed to be John Stats to work at these companies. And they only hired John Stats, and the games they put out reflected that. Uh, and so I think that is... I'll, I'll get to that <laughs> a bit. Um, but again, I think it's... I think it is... I think it's fascinating to hear about. Um, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but the idea that networking is a novel concept is so funny to me in yeah. like 2023 where we're recording this over Discord and like this idea that it blew their minds that like we could expect people to connect to the internet to play the game and like the idea of like they have to be connected to the internet because otherwise we'll cheat. It's the only like the one of the biggest things driving it was if you have to be connected to the internet, there's no way for people to like edit their game files and give themselves items they shouldn't have. Uh, and so we have to do it that way. Otherwise this doesn't work. Um, I have no thoughts there. It's just very funny to like hear that now 20 years later and be like, that's not that long ago, but it feels so But at the day. same time, like back in wow, pre expansion days, like absolutely my cousin and i would spend tons of time we had different programs that allowed us to like modify the game files for wow on our computer to like make all sorts of things look different in the game so if you had a little bit more control over what items you had in your inventory or stuff like that of course absolutely people would do that so totally makes sense but yeah just reading about game development from that long ago it you know what was out then like 
N64, like that era of yeah. stuff. So before consoles were networked at all or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You're still, if you're playing together, you're connecting with a physical yeah. cord. You're connecting your Game Boys with a cord to yeah. trade Pokemon or whatever. Like that's and and they sold whole things called Game Sharks to <laughs> let you edit yeah. files of game. Like it was part of the culture of gaming. So like, if you wanted to not do that, you had to do it. And it's just so, uh, yeah, it's such a, it's such a blast from the past mm-hmm. to read about it that way. Um hilarious that they took the idea of day and night from animal crossing he goes into a anecdote of like a show i don't remember which one but some like trade show they were at of like this new game called animal crossing was being announced and it had this really novel concept of like day and night cycles and we were like ooh, we could replicate that for a while and just just like took that from animal crossing and that's yep. so funny to me again like it makes sense like that's those those are the contemporaries but it's so funny to imagine uh that that inspiration worked in that way <laughs> that that was very funny to read uh it's fun to look at these yes. pictures again just somebody as wow the book is full of like it it's like a big at least the copy you gave me is like a big hardcover book that is has lots of writing, but it's also just lots of like in development renderings and like very specific shots of of environments before they were created and things like that. And as like a WoW player for a long time, it is just very funny to like look at these very 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 early basic renditions of characters and settings and things like yeah, that. Yeah, because I mean the the very very beginnings of WoW. Uh, you know, one of the big things they talk about or he talks about in the book is that they wrote their own engine. So like a lot of games you play now um, might be written in uh, using like the Unity engine or the Unreal engine where it is fully already designed. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas for WoW, they built their own engine from scratch for like how you render graphics and all sorts of stuff like that. Um and so the very mm-hmm. beginnings of WoW, they didn't have an engine because they were still building it. So they built the beginnings of it on their Warcraft 3 engine instead. And so there's, yeah, screenshots in the book showing very early concept of WoW using, like, Warcraft 3 resources and stuff. And it's just, it's it's really interesting but really funny to see the very early stuff that they put out for it. Yeah, it is very cool. And in general, like you spoke to the rendering piece, this book is full of sausage baking, of like very detailed what tools they were using, very detailed like exactly how processes went and things like that. That's the kind of thing that like I suspect you found more Absolutely. interesting than I did. <laughs> like uh, like it's, it's interesting to a certain extent, but after I got through the first hundred yeah. pages of these books, of this book, I started yep. like skimming those sections where I could tell it was like going to get into like real detailed programming stuff. I'm sort of like, I, again, I'm interested in the context. I'm interested in the like eventual resolution, but like exactly which program you're using to build various dungeons is not, this means both means nothing to me. And just like, I, this is like over some of it was over my head, even as somebody who's like relatively, 
knowledgeable was like over my head to the point that I was like, I don't, this is a lot of, I mean, this is written for himself and for his team, clearly. Like the audience originally designed for this is his team that worked on it. Uh, and that was uh, clear through yeah, reading some I mean, of this. You know, I'm, you and I'm sure most people don't care uh, really that they're you know are they using radiant or 3d studio max to design their yes. levels and stuff like that like <laughs> um and, and yeah i think the book mm-hmm. it, you know that it was something he t- he did this diary while they were developing and he talked for a long time about making it into a book and i think after um no longer being at the company i think it was partially like some prodding from other co-workers of his to get him to finally like put it yeah. together. So yeah, I think definitely written for for himself and for them to some extent. But yes, definitely yeah, I, sure. I I that is fully unsurprising to me that that is uh was your thoughts on those sections cuz yeah, those those are the parts that I found fascinating to read cuz it's all the, like that development stuff is all what I was really interested in, especially in like high school and whatnot, I would have loved reading this book back then. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's, I still really enjoy reading that sort of stuff now, especially especially about a game that is so close to me specifically because I've so much experience with it. Like if the same book was written about like a Call of Duty game or like a Dark Souls or something like that, I'd still probably find it interesting just not as interesting since I'm not as familiar and close to the product that it's about. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, Let's talk about press. So John Stats disdains games <laughs> reporters. It's very clear at various different points. We'll talk, I'll talk about it later as well. Uh, but it is clear he has a very low opinion of games press. I mean, he, he just says, like, games press, and again, he's writing this in 2001, 2002, function more like PR for games companies uh, than they do, like, real reporters, quote-unquote. Um, and he, again, opines on why he thinks that is, around, like, they're afraid of losing... They just, like, don't know what they're talking about, so they take everything at face Mm -hmm. value and or they are afraid of losing access. And uh, I think that's interesting. So I'm not here today in 2001. (laughs) I'm here in 2023. However, I do work with some games press, including some... I work with a lot of press very similar to games press. I do work with some games press and some of the work that I do in PR. I also like sit next to the people who do PR for Xbox, who do PR for like Halo and Minecraft and things like that, like chat with them all the time. Uh, And so I have a slightly different view of this, which is, well, I have some, I, I, have a different view of this, but I also do kind of see where he's coming from. A lot of industry-specific press. If you think about, like, for me, to if I can get on my little PR soapbox for a minute, um, you have a couple different, like, levels of media. One is, like, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. They are who John Stats has in his head yeah. as, like, journalists who are reporting 
news who are doing not doing analysis while they report but are like reporting critically and that is what their job is there is a level below that of like industry press if we talk about like um i don't know name an industry like architecture cozy is an architect there are various different uh publications that like cater to architecture their role and the purpose of their publication is not necessarily to do investigative journalism. It is to report about what companies in their sector are saying and doing. And, like, that is what they do. So, like, games press are closer to that, are, like, closer to trade reporters than they are to, like, journalists. And so... If they are, he is constantly upset through various points in this book that, like, other MMO companies are making these outlandish claims that I know they could never fulfill, but reporters are too naive to, like, call them on it. But if I'm a reporter, my job is not, isn't necessarily to do that. Some publications do that, but, like, my job is to say X, Y, and Z studio says they will do this thing. And then people like John Stats read it, and they can do their own analysis. But, like, my job <laughs> yeah. is to just report the thing. Yeah, because he, he complains so, like, about how, like, they, I get why he's frustrated. They didn't even make it in, like, a best-in-show list or anything when they revealed. Yes, I'll get, I'll, <laughs> I'll get to that. I've got lots of thoughts about that. Um, uh, but, like... He doesn't. He fundamentally like doesn't really understand yeah. how these press play. I, I will say, even within this, I do think oftentimes trade media. I'm trying to phrase this very carefully uh, because I work with a lot of trade media all the time. I think that some trade media could aim higher, could like try to do more, be a little more critical, and be a little more. I don't think it's crazy to to say like. You know, let's let's not just publish the press release verbatim. Um, the journalists shouldn't be doing that. They should be doing some amount of their own reporting instead of just like publishing press releases. Um, that said, his idea, he speaks to um, like why reporters only publish. He, he goes on a rant about like they only publish positive coverage because they're afraid of losing access and like. I think that's true to a certain extent, but one of the things he is baffling to me not considering is the harassment factor. Uh So we're recording this in September of 2023. We are only a few weeks away from IGN uh, editors getting death threats and like mass uh like review bombs on their website like youtube channel bombarded with downvotes because they gave starfield a seven seven out of ten games the kind of people who obsessively follow games press are some of the most unhinged audience that i can even like a gaming reporter publishing a critical piece about a triple a game that is not doing anything against the consensus puts them in the firing line, literally. So, like, it's really easy for John in his little hole where he just sort of goes from home to apartment and has no family <laughs> and nothing to lose to just sort of be like, they should they should call these people out and blah, blah, blah. Like, again, he doesn't have 
much ability or inclination to like look beyond his own nose and i think this is another example of that um last thing for now on the pr piece uh he mentions when they get to the point where they're ready to announce wow not when they're going to publish it but when they're going to like announce what they are making at this point like the industry and people are aware that blizzard is working on like a secret project um they decide to give an exclusive to Computer Gaming World, which was a magazine at the time, where they have they have allowed Computer Gaming World to come like visit them and tour their studios under embargo, which means they have said, you can look at this, but you're not allowed to publish a story about it until after X, Y, and Z date. At the time, this is 2001, so most media is still not the internet. A Computer mm-hmm. Gaming World was a magazine, and so their edition of the magazine was going to come out after Blizzard was going to announce this at a trade show. Um, he says, and th- that's how this works. Computer Gaming World tours it. They don't publish a story until after it goes live. And he talks about, like, I was surprised and, like, happy that they kept their word. And, like, it's rare, quote, rare in our leaky industry for them to, like, not have broken this early. Okay. I don't know much about media relations in 2001. So it's possible that the entire nature of media relations was different. (laughs) Outlets don't break embargoes. Like, that's not a thing that happens. If you get a a real outlet, like Computer Gaming World was like legitimate, respected, they're owned by Ziff Davis, which is an existing, still publishing outlet... They were big. They had a lot of... They had real reporters doing, like, legitimate work. They weren't some random little thing. Um, Reporters respect embargoes. And it's two things. One is, like, the access piece of, like, if a reporter breaks embargo, and this has happened to me, of, like, if a reporter breaks an embargo, I will never give them a story again. (laughs) Like, I will never... I can't trust them. Mm -hmm. So I, like, won't send them things in advance. Um... And it's just like professional, like the way this works is I email someone to say, hey, I'm willing to give this to you, but I need you to agree to not do this. And if you break your word, like most people are not that big of assholes. Uh, Would you like to know how leaks happen? It's developers. (laughs) It's people like John Stats always. Like the, the thing that reporters are good at is they're good at trade shows, getting like cozy with developers and like, Oh, this game looks amazing. Like, part of the reason that every reporter that uh, he has had an interaction with at a trade show is, like, fawning over every single game is because that's their job. That's how they build relationships with developers. And then if they want to scoop, they don't reach out to PR and they don't go through embargoes. They just, like, text a developer and say, like, hey, heard this through the grapevine. Can you talk to me? And developers will just say things because they are not as savvy (laughs) as they think they are. Uh, and that is like, so when I'm reading this, I'm like, John, you don't understand how this, to be honest, it made me question a lot of his, he's making like very confident assertions about the industry that I feel fairly certain are not actually correct. And so I think it is a lot of this book I read through a slightly different context where like, I think he's an expert in exactly what he is doing for this development I think he is way less of an expert on the industry broadly and like other it's the classic fallacy of like 
someone is really good at one very specific thing and they think they extrapolate it to the whole industry. And like, I don't, I think he knows a ton about development. I think he knows way less about publishing than he actually thinks he does is my yeah, very strong Yeah, because like in my suspicion. mind, it would be, you know, the re- the how the leak would happen would be, it's not because like the the company, this like computer gaming world would break the embargo that but rather that it might be like one person accidentally let it slip whether it's someone at cgw or someone at blizzard to someone outside the company that like that's what they're working on not and and not like some nefarious like ha we've got the inside scoop we're gonna break it to everyone like no because eventually when when they did have something leak um the way it leaked is their parent company just like yeah. posting something later. Like it's it's always someone's mistake. It's never like a, and in that case, uh, I as a journalist have no obligation to you. Did I didn't agree to an embargo. Like it's not my job to guard your trade secret. It's my yeah. job to like report the news. Yeah, and like that's so that's what I do. Uh, but it's it's again. I I think he is very good at understanding people and jobs that are exactly like his and deeply <laughs> not empathetic towards people and jobs that are not his. Um, which again, there are a lot of people like that, but I, I think it is a, it makes it arguably a more fascinating read because he, I was going to say he's kind of a dirtbag. I think that's too harsh, but I, I think is not emotionally intelligent at all. Uh, speaking of not being emotionally intelligent, I just want to read this passage. Um, we talked about Crunch already. Uh, he, he mentioned, quote, some employees had spouses and children, and no, wanted, no one wanted kids to miss their father just because he worked on computer games. Still, for a few years of development, the entire Vanilla WoW team worked many late nights, and I think it was remarkable that no one worked only regular hours. So, <laughs> yep. just yep. leaving aside the whole, like, f- uh, father thing... Which, again, to be fair, it's almost literally all men, so that might actually be factually correct. Um, yeah. That's not necessarily a good thing, John. Like, like no. I mean, I mean, no, here's not. the thing. Maybe it is. Like, this is... Well, I it's, it's not a good thing, and I'll get to why. But, like... I just think it's so funny that he's that this he's just like writing this like it's a value like it's a like no one on the team was able to work. It's not even like some people are so passionate. It's like a point of pride. Yeah, it's one hundred. So many times he mentions like how he was one of the people who always stayed the latest and like there's a and like always worked the weekends. Yeah, it's not exactly like hustle culturey. It's like passion. Uh, dick measuring. <laughs> it's like it's really like <laughs> everyone here cared about this so much that we didn't give a shit about our families, and no one wanted kids <laughs> to miss their father, but we did want their father to not care if they're like. It's it's a little. He does mention like social pressure at certain points of like no one wanted to be the one person to leave early, and to be clear, leaving early meant leaving before six thirty. Uh, yeah. but like. Yeah, it's just so, like, the lack of self-awareness really just, like, uh, bleeds through every part of this book. Uh, totally unrelated. So funny that fingers were such a big point of contention. There's literally, like, three <laughs> pages about 
the debate over whether to make character models fingers movable of like and like how important that seemed to them yeah that they spent like days debating and testing various different like should players hands basically work like big mittens or uh very specific or or move with individual fingers because it allows you different emotes uh to if you can have fingers but then also it like it uh it's way more complicated to code and etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's and it will slow down frame rates and and x y and z and it's just so th- this is an example of one of those uh pair like sections where like i found it very entertaining to skim <laughs> But I yeah. started to go cross-eyed when we get really deeply into the nitty-gritty of how you code fingers and what the implications it has. <laughs> well, and the first thought that came to my mind reading that was like, in all the years playing WoW, I don't think I can even remember if like the player models from uh, the like original player models had hands like mittens or fingers. I, like it just I don't remember. It just like doesn't matter. And, and I don't I. <laughs> I we, I don't remember. I just read this book, and again, I went a little cross-eyed. I can't remember what decision they made. I don't think they had fingers originally, right? I don't think. I think they do. They do. Now. They do now for sure. I don't remember if they did originally. Or I don't know. Like it doesn't. It's so. It's such a specific, <laughs> and it is a really funny example of like all the tiny little things that you do have to consider, and like all the very specific like when you go into a loading screen, what does that look like when you like. Uh, when you a character jumps and then hits a wall, how does that impact? Like it's it's all those little things are like again. I think I think you probably get more out of it than I do, but it is fun to like to read about those different debates and think about all the tiny little things that have to go into every piece of developing something as big as this. Yeah, because and, and all those things you have to think about because otherwise your players, aka me are going to be the ones that try to break your geography by finding, you know, hey, if you go to this one wall and you jump at it weird, you can climb up it and then get to areas you're not supposed to get to. Yep. And that was 90% of my gameplay that <laughs> when the game was first out. So, like, mm-hmm. you have to spend a lot of time, like, discussing those details because otherwise it's just, you know, going to be so much easier for us to break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's very funny to me. Um, okay, I want to pull out a couple of things in sequence because I think they are related. Um, okay, they happen at very different points in the book. Uh, but just a couple facts. Uh, first, a fact. Do you remember what the first guild name in World of Warcraft is? Oh. I don't. It, you'll. I'll know it as soon as you. Say uh, the it, answer but. is Assmaster. Is yep, the I thought. It, I thought it was something like that. A uh, <laughs> guild created by the developers. Um, so that's just one thing. Um, he talks about yeah during like their beta test of like trying to figure out how guilds yeah work and like stuff. making guilds and how they would interact and things like that. Um, he also goes on a. Uh, again, I was going to say rant, but that's not really true. He, he he talks about how, like, their biggest competitor that they were really worried about was Star Wars Galaxies. Um, mm-hmm. And he sort of, like, shit on Star Wars Galaxies for creating, like, a complex player interaction system 
of like how players could socialize based on various their classes and like complex sort of like social dynamics and how they would create uh, like moderate things and things like that. Uh, and he basically describes it as like, we weren't worried about that. We were worried about making a good game and like we, all that, that stuff sounds boring and sounds like uninteresting. Uh, and then he said, quote, if our designers could prevent griefing and do our best to minimize reasons to argue, we were laissez faire about social behavior. Combat was hard enough. Socialization would have to take care of itself. Um, so keep that in mind. That's one other thing. Mm-hmm. Final thing. He talks about lore uh, and is extremely dismissive of creating the lore of a video game. Is very like... Oh, very much so. Lore does not matter. Gamers are in it to play games. You want the action to feel good. You want the core like resolution loop to feel good. The lore is just the scaffolding that you put around it it doesn't matter he said quote if often it's often someone high in the organization who is in charge of lore since it's the easiest creative position the audience is usually forgiving if the storytelling is bad uh he then i have that same quote in my notes (laughs) yes he also like describes uh he basically is like game stories have to be simple they have to be filled with tropes because quote subtlety is lost on a gaming audience subtlety is lost on Uh you like the thing the (laughs) the core piece of like everyone in this studio the studio is filled with a bunch of dudes who think like a guild named ass master is funny who like don't (laughs) care i'm I'm not even like shitting on that necessarily but it's like all the exact same type of dude who subtlety is lost on who like consume mostly the same types of video games as this who watch mostly fantasy movies like he he describes a bunch of the movies they really wanted to go to and it was like lord of the rings x-men like it's all the same types of stuff uh he all of these sections are him well the ass master one's slightly different but everything else is him making like broad assertions about what gamers are like or what people care about this is what your team cared about, and you get the audience that you are. Like, this is what happens when you have a... Who gamers are becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because of who is making games. Like, that, that is my consensus. of Like, games are not like this today, because broadly, people... Game development is still, like, very broadly male and white, especially, like, male, white, and Asian, to be honest... But, like, there's a diversity of experience and opinion that has broadened these things. Gamers have not changed, but the people who have make games change is they make different types of games that appeal to more people. And, like, that thought is way, would go way over John Stat's head. He does not have it in <laughs> his mind to, like, see beyond how he thinks and how the people who are exactly like him think. And so it is... It's it's just so clear. Like the more I read this, I was like, you do not, you are not as smart as you think you are, John. You just aren't. Like you do not have as good enough grasp on what gaming. Your imagination is too small for who could be interested in this and it, what gaming could be. Uh, and I think the past twenty years, like WoW has succeeded. It found an audience, but like you could have dreamed bigger. And the reason you couldn't is because you had a team entirely of the same guy. 
of 60 of the exact same guy. <laughs> and uh, I will give him at least the his idea that the audience is usually forgiving if the storytelling is bad. Like, mm-hmm. there has been a lot of times in WoW's history where the storytelling has been not great. Uh, I would argue the storytelling's never been good. I would argue <laughs> that it's got it's been worse at times than others. Yeah. Uh, but, like, broadly, I think audience's bar for a good story has risen uh versus the the past just as much as storytelling has been good or bad at any given point i kind of like if you look at the initial story of wow it is exactly what he described he does have a clear handle of what the story is which is a pretty bland trope filled fantasy story that doesn't really have anything to say it just sort of is there are kings, and then they betray each other, and then there are orcs, and then they attack the white people, and the, like, you know, we won't even get into, like, one faction is a bunch of, like, European-coded people, and then one faction is a bunch of, like, uh, not-white-coded people that are portrayed as monster races, but regardless, like... It, it, which I will... <laughs> they make a point, uh, which I found funny, uh, when they... That Korea. they were having a lot less people yeah, play in Korea during their beta test. And the general feedback they got was that they didn't like playing as the monster races because monsters are meant to be killed and not yeah, played as. Played as. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really... The, the racial politics of fantasy are not... These are not... This is not unique to World of Warcraft. This is baggage yeah. that is true of any fantasy uh, or like most fantasy places. But it is, you know... No one on that team at could ever have considered racial politics ever, uh, because a because they're all white, and b just because they are not they're focused on how to make the dungeon better, and they do not have the like world experience or uh, maybe not world experience, but they that's they just don't care. They do not care about that kind of stuff, and so it breeds an audience who also does not care about that kind of stuff. And so when you look at, like, why is the WoW community immature and difficult and toxic, like, this is the answer. Like, it's it's because you didn't give a shit to make it not that. Like, you just assumed it would be toxic and like, oh, well. But it's like other games can create good fan bases. They just have to care. You just have to do it. Uh I will so, yeah. say, going off that a little bit, I did like his idea of creating an Australia server, as they called it. Yeah. Where uh, instead of banning players, they would just uh, exile them all to a server that they would all have to play on with only other people who were toxic or hackers or whatever. It's sort no of funny. GM support. Uh, I thought that was a funny idea. It is sort of funny. It, it, it's, it is... Uh... <laughs> I I would rather those people have to like face real consequences for their action. Yeah. Like, but it is funny as like a social experiment. Like it would it would have <laughs> been funny to try just to like see what happens to that server. Let it go for like the first year of the game and then realize, ah, maybe we should just not let these people play our game. I don't know. Or maybe they sell I don't know. Australia's turned out all right. Like I you know, I don't <laughs> I have no idea. Who knows? Who knows how that would go? Someone smarter than me who's like is an actual expert on audience behavior, probably, but I have no idea. 
Um, okay, I've been going for a long time, so I will. I'll try to get through the last couple things I need to say. Um, Blizzard booked entire movie theaters so their employees wouldn't quote waste time in line for movies. They like knew uh-huh. because again, the the team is entirely all the same guys, so they all want to see Lord of the Rings, obviously. Um, so they instead of letting their employees do whatever they wanted in their free time. They basically said, if you want to see Lord of the Rings, you can see it at this time. We've reserved a theater and you can go do it because they didn't want employees going to midnight showings or like waiting in line for tickets. They wanted them spending that time on the game. And it's so crazy. Like he frames it as like a look at this amazing perk and look at this team bonding of like we all go to this theater and see this thing. And I get it. Like, I get it. I get how, like, that would be fun in the moment. But, like, you put a slight twist on it, and it's, like, corporation is worried employees might have free time. So they find a way to, like, make seeing Lord of the Rings an on-the-clock activity is, like, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, that is it's wild. So, it's wild. Well, I mean, it's, like, it's another thing, too, if it's, like, hey, we got, we ended up getting, like, we figured out a way to get an early access, or, like, we just booked a whole theater, because yeah. we know a lot of people are seeing this, so you could come on a Saturday, and everyone can, like, see it together. You know, like, there's a way that you could do that that's not bad, but that is wild. I mean, the way would be to do it during work. The way would be or to, that, like, yeah, we're taking right. off Friday afternoon to go do this, uh, but it's well, but I mean, yeah, even if like so you could see a company being like, we booked out a theater, like you can come and bring your family for th- free, like the you will provide popcorn, you know, like you can all come see it for free, like that's kind of a fun perk. But like to we'll do it you out of so your that cage to see your wife, and your kids <laughs> for free yeah, right. Uh, uh-huh. Versus like it being like a yeah, you have to, like don't go see it on your own time. Like yeah, we'll we'll arrange it for you so it'll take up the least work time. Uh, and what should be your free time is truly the uh, darkest timeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I just thought that was so funny. Um, he goes on a sort of tangent about other games where he thinks that other MMOs went wrong when they focused on they like focused on a concept instead of focusing on. They focused on a concept they thought would be cool instead of focused on something that was proven to work. Where you'd say, like, other games would say, like, vehicles are really fun, so we're building, like, a vehicle-centric game. Or, like, doing big tower sieges is really fun, so we're gonna we're gonna build an MMO that has tower sieges in it. Where he basically said, like, what we did was we know from years of playing tabletop role-playing games and playing single-player RPGs that what players like is they like getting loot. They like improving their characters' stats. They like seeing the numbers go up, and they like getting equipment that makes those numbers go up. And so what we did was we took that very basic concept, and we tried to make that experience as fun as possible instead of starting with something, like, really big and really ambitious and really cool. We started with, like, the simplest known quantity and then just, like, tried to make that frictionless and enjoyable. And I think there's one hand where that's sort of... It, that feels, like, cowardly at... at It feels like taking the safe route of, like, 
we're just going to do the thing. But this is kind of what Blizzard does. And this yes. is sort of 100%. why their their games work is because like the thing they're not particularly original in in a macro sense. They take ideas that other people have tried and they just say like what if we pump way more money into them than anyone else and try to do them Bet like when he's describing other people doing MMOs, he's like, we realized they had half the staff and had to do it in half the time as us. Like, if Blizzard is successful at anything, it is pumping money into things and trusting that they'll get a return on the end. And like that more than I think anything else of just like let's not aim high. These other people had good ideas. Let's just take the idea and like actually really go for it and like give the team what they say they need instead of just like trying to turn something around and sending something out that is super half finished. Um, it seems easy, but like that really kind of is Blizzard's secret sauce, I think. Yeah, because he, a lot of what they talk about uh, or that he talks about in the book it, are different ideas that they had that they implemented into the game that, um, like I said earlier, like either purposely or inadvertently allowed them to gain a wider audience. Um, like he talks specifically about like the questing, mm-hmm. um, that like the original intent was to have like some light quests in an area, but then that you'd have to like, grind and like group up with other people to like level up the rest of the way before you go to the next zone and that they wanted to keep people in a zone so they added in a bunch more quests but uh, i think the quote was by trying to solve a navigation problem to keep people in the zone that they were in until they were the right level we'd inadvertently engaged a larger audience namely the solo players so like um you know taking ideas from other companies and reworking them and polishing them while then also getting lucky with stuff like that to some extent that like, you know, hindsight is 2020. They can, you know, they have the benefit of being able to look back and be like, yeah, we succeeded because of these reasons. But like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, they, it's just, it's interesting to read in that context because yeah, Blizzard has always been known as a company that, um, is not the most original company ever. Like they, yeah. they make their games by polishing off genres that other people have made in the past. Um, yeah. By making it like an extremely high poly. I mean, you look at overwatch is just a polished version of like team fortress two. Yeah. It's the uh, same game. It's Heroes just of the more... storm, you know, Dota two and league and all of that. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, it's that's kind of their whole mo. So like, none of that reading in this is surprising to me that that's that that was their idea here too was to not, you know, to not aim for weird high concept type additions to their game that would make them stand out at a trade show, and rather try to just like make the best normal basic MMO they could, and like perfect everything about that yeah and i think that's what money buys you right is is the is the luck like it buys you time and space to like try things of like if they had to ship wow in 18 months 
they would think of ideas and be like, oh, that might be cool, but, like, we don't have time to, like, experiment on that. And, like, he describes the rush to finish the game, and everybody has that, but compared to their competitors, they had such a bigger staff and such a bigger knowledge base to pull from and so much more time and so much more money that it is, like... Like, I'm not knocking Blizzard. That Like, that's that is, that's why you succeed. And that's, like, why WoW continues to succeed. It's not demonstrably... Its story is worse than, I think, many similar MMOs. Its world is sorted nothing. The community is not good. Uh, I lead a WoW guild primarily because it takes a, an incredible amount of effort to find... 20 people who don't suck to play this game with of a game of <laughs> 7 million uh it, like it's quite hard but it it just like uh, it just works better the game is just up the combat feels good to do yeah the like encounters are well like the execution is just there and like that's budget that's where budget comes in yeah um, cuz he says um at one point earlier he says that there's an implication that good ideas are are either rare or or crucial uh, yeah. but basically goes into that like they're not like it's not hard to come up with like good ideas for gameplay and stuff it's just a matter of how long and how much yeah. manpower you need to actually implement them and blizzard has that benefit of having a lot of money and time and manpower to implement all those things yep which is weird thinking about back then, like that forty people. I mean, wasn't enough to make the game because their staff like doubled, basically. But right. even thinking about it now, I think in the most recent WoW expansion, their staff was listed as around seven hundred. Like right, and, and and like that's 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 just developers. That's like not even counting any sort of publishing support they're like in every single chapter of this book you know he's talking about team two team two is the team in charge of making wow but like every chapter he mentions like a couple people from team one who are also just like helping out like the yeah. the resources they had are like really dwarfed anyone else doing this kind of thing at that time um so I thought that was interesting. I think you'd mentioned when you pitched this, like, it's not a well-written book. Uh, and it's not. Like like I said, it, it's not There's it's not prose. It's yes. just, like, this dude making notes. I, I don't think that, like, hurt. Because it, it's the WoW Diaries. It's not, like, the... It's not an expose. It is the thing in it. It's his notes of making it. The only place I think that hurt was the people... He, he, like, talks about people. Like I said, he used their names a lot. But because there's no... It's about the development. There's no time to talk about, like, who they are or what they were like or, like, what they really cared about or, like... Because the truth is, he probably, A, doesn't know because I don't know that he's socially aware enough to, mm -hmm. like, have talked to these people about anything other than their hobbies and, like, their... And wow. Um, but also just, like... He uh, the book doesn't take the time. It's focused on wow, and so when he when we're uh, two hundred pages in, he keeps bringing up somebody's name. I kept being like, I don't remember who this person is. Like I don't. Yeah, it is this individual person's struggle to do a specific thing does not move me in any way. Yeah, you don't get any of that like people side of the of the team mm -hmm. at all. It's it is very much focused on like what did this person do on the team. 
and not yep. like who is this person. So which is which made that, like, describing what they do on the team way less interesting because <laughs> the thing <laughs> that makes good stories is good characters. Yeah, and the uh, there are no characters in this. It's not a story. It's it's a nonfiction book about the making of WoW. But like even nonfiction books, like you know, like the best historical exposés create characters out of the the people in them and it's it's uh it's there are places it reads like a textbook because of that as opposed to like a a you know nonfiction historical accounting yeah because like i i cared more when i heard a name that i recognized like if he was talking about like jeff kaplan who went on to like lead overwatch development or yeah like alex afrasiabi or chris metzen <laughs> um, yeah names like that that really stuck out to me than I was I like cared more but names that I had never heard before just like mm-hmm. generally went over my head so yeah uh yeah for sure um hilarious they thought about stealth mode there's like a brief thing of like what if everyone is always in stealth mode and like enemies can notice you but not attack you and like imagining how different this game would be <laughs> if you like it's just a totally different game. Yeah. It's completely different. Like that that was carried over into a couple different classes where you can go into stealth, but the idea that like stealth is the default mode for everyone is like it's just it's wild to think that these are like sliding doors moments for like how different this game could be based on just like some random dude's whim at one point. Or yeah, there's a lot of those points in the book. Like there's one where they talk about that basically it was decided for the team that they were going to pursue uh, having an infinite number of generic dungeons. So basically like procedural generation rather than having like a small number of unique dungeons. Um, And that that was like decided for them, that that was the path they were going to go. And just thinking like how different WoW would be if, you know, that original version of WoW didn't have those cool experiences like walking through the dead mines and seeing the big ship at the end that first time, and instead it's just like a a generic dungeon one after another. Yeah. And, and crazy to think, like, how different MMOs would be. Yeah. Knowing that, like, th- there was basically no chance this game would fail. Um at least not fail to, like, sell copies initially, how, and how much, like, people, it's not even steal from each other, but, like, take inspiration from the games they play and, like, what is coming out, like, how different MMOs would be if they, if, like, proc gen became the standard instead of, like, a very small number of, like, bespoke experiences. Um, It's super interesting to think about. I mean... Blizzard literally tried to do it last expansion uh, with an area yeah, called did. Torghast and uh, very widely panned by the WoW community for how terrible it was. So, yeah, I think it's one of those like it's hard to go back in. It's hard to like change direction at a certain point once you've built that audience. Yeah. There's lots of like proc gen games that people really like. Uh, and there are lots of very bespoke games people really like. But I think those are different audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it, it, it's, it's, uh, who Torghast was awful. Um, <laughs> it didn't help that everything looked identical. It was all just gray and nothing. Yep. Um, but anyway, um, you might have said, and I missed it, but what does proc gen mean? 
procedural generation. So it means like you, instead of a designer sitting down, like placing every individual pixel that you have created either, either like an array of options that are just randomized. So maybe you've got like 20 or 200 different possible chunks of a dungeon that when someone loads into it randomly get assembled in some order. So it's a little different every time or, or that like nowadays might be like some sort of AI or like algorithm is like automatedly creating this based on just a bunch of assets. Um, but it's something that is like generated randomly and procedure like based on a set of parameters as opposed to like handcrafted one by one. Got it. Okay. That's correct, right, Cody? Yes. I'm yep. pretty sure. Yep. Um there's a point again where after they've already announced it, but they haven't given too many details. They've announced it, they've done a short little gameplay demo. So much disdain for journalists <laughs> who this is the point you mentioned before of like they're going to other MMOs and giving them a bunch of attention and him being like, well, they didn't even care about us, but we knew we were going to be so much better. And like they're reporting on all these other things that like they say they can do. And we we're like, there's no way they can actually ship that. But they don't know enough to know that their claims are BS. And like they keep asking us when we're going to ship and we just tell them we'll ship the game when it's ready. And I'm like. Bro, two things. One, if I'm a report... So, I guess, number one, his jealousy and need for attention scream through the page. (laughs) Like, the this is what reporters play on to get leaks, is, like, he has spent his whole life in a basement working on this game, and he's desperate for someone to tell him good job, for someone outside (laughs) of the team to be like... Wow, this is amazing. This is awesome. And not getting that from journalists who are giving it to other games, it enrages him. And it's so funny. And it's so funny how little he understands about his own emotional reaction in this moment. It's very human. Like, I don't blame him, but it's it's his, his need to be recognized and, like, jealousy at them not being recognized is it's it's so like like incel edgelord like you'll see you'll see (laughs) when my it's like it's it it like made me laugh so it's it's every stereotype that i had in my head of like game developers uh to 11 it was it was so i do also like that that continues uh, to the where he does actually get praise for something, uh, but it is yes. for uh, he designed a, a dungeon that became the first raid in the game uh, called the Molten Core. Uh, he designed it at the very tail end of development um, in like a week, and then they did put like the yep. finishing touches on it over the next like week or two before they put it in the game. Uh, and he talked about how. Like, whenever he talks to people, like, the praise that he gets for his contributions to the game are for that dungeon that he uh, very obviously thinks is, like, his worst work in the game uh, and, like, most sloppy work in the game and just, like, how much he basically doesn't like that that is what people recognize him for. It's so funny because it also is the best dungeon. He's just wrong. Like, I don't like I understand. I get it. The thing you spent the least time on being the most impactful thing. But like, 
that dungeon slaps, and so much of the stuff, so many of those original dungeons from Classic WoW are not good. <laughs> like, not well designed. I mean, again, for the time, sure, but like, going back to it, anyway, we don't need to talk about Moldcore forever, but, um, God, the, his, his chat about journalists is just so funny. Imagine you're a it's reporter. Also- like to a reporter, the thing he's like, "Well, I just keep telling him I'll ship it when it's done." You know, it's not a good article. Exactly. Time for shipping for this secret project, TBD. Uh, <laughs> developers won't say it'll ship when it's done. I guess who knows when that'll be. Like, exactly. That's not an article. What do you want them to do? Like, it's so. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so his like competitiveness and like self righteousness. Again, it's it's. It's so human. Like, it's so... It's... it's it's. I don't f- blame or fault him for, like, having those emotions, but it's so funny how little self-awareness he has. It's so, so funny to me. Well, it's, it's one thing looking... Ba- like, writing this in 2016, 2023, whatever. Um, and, you know, Blizzard has that amount of clout where, like that's totally it's whatever it's fine if like that is their attitude towards like giving a release date but this was before this game was released and like barely even announced uh and that is the attitude they had uh it's just it's very funny god it's it killed me um okay last two things um he talks about marketing a decent amount and talks about like where other studios run into trouble is if they lead with marketing and he uses marketing basically as a analogy for sales and like sales strategy of like if the suits in charge of uh capitalization on media are in charge of the development that is where games go wrong and that's the thing that he like praises that's one of the few areas he like very the whole book is like quietly praising blizzard of like talking about how great he thinks blizzard's management was um uh but that's the place he like open like full with his chest is just like blizzard is great because they do not let the salespeople lead they lead with the with product and development and they rely mostly on like word of mouth to get their game out that's just not well okay two things he's he is basically correct i i think like i i do i i would buy that i would buy that like when you lead with sales when you you're focused on selling a product before focused on creating a product that serves your customers needs or wants that's where companies run into trouble and he talks about it as like you got to make something that's fun first it's the same you know if i'm making a uh Clorox wipe if I'm making a cleaning product I gotta make something that works first and then focus on how I sell it second um like like I think that makes sense and I do buy that Blizzard is basically good they basically do give like their little teams and the team heads free reign to do what they want it sounds like based on his um his assertion the idea that they relied mostly on word of mouth is totally false like they had he describes at various points complex public relations strategies of various embargoes and etc he talks about like 
different marketing dollars. We all remember the World of Warcraft ads that aired on television. How many other ads do you remember for like computer <laughs> games that aired f- featuring like Mr. Mr. T? T. Yeah. Like not a lot. Like Blizzard again. This is a place where he has blind. He is like choosing to remember Blizzard as this like scrappy company that's us against the world. Company, Blizzard, where the yeah. truth is like. Yeah, they even then were a behemoth compared to the vast majority of, uh, uh, except Nintendo is maybe the only other company that like was meaningfully beating them in terms of marketing spend, I would bet. Uh, I mean, there were probably other companies too that were beating them, but like they, the idea that they quote relied mostly on word of mouth is simply not true, is just not correct. (laughs) Uh, I think that's what it, it's what he likes to believe because it makes his role seem the most impactful. If it's like marketing had nothing to do with the success of WoW, we just made a game that was so good everyone discovered it with no help at all. But like, you had an incredible amount of attention despite doing no press. So where did that attention come from? Like, came from somewhere. Some someone was talking about like word of mouth from whom. We know it's not the developers because you talk to no one, including <laughs> apparently your own kids. So like, it came it came from somewhere. You just again, you just didn't see that part, so you don't know that it exists. But you know, let's have a little bit more self awareness. Um. Okay. Two more things. Um. It's so funny that they wanted to build Hearthstone in WoW. This is my last real like WoW yeah. thing. But at the end, it's just like thrown in at the end that they were like. We really wanted to have a collectible card game in the game that you could like play in the game. It was a fun idea. We like created some art assets and just decided it was not worth the investment. It's so funny to think that like didn't they say they like printed off like a version yeah. of it that like they had people in their company who are professional magic players saying that like it was better than, like, two-thirds of the different collectible card games that are out there. Yeah. They, like, went down the road. And I I have to believe some of that showed up in Hearthstone later, I would assume. Uh, And so it's it's just so... In general, when WoW has done little mini-games within WoW, in my opinion, they basically don't work. They basically, yeah. like, you know, they did pet battling, which is, like, Pokemon in WoW that, like, no one mm. does. Uh, it's not... I don't know that it would have been successful. I think Hearthstone's definitely more successful as its own thing. But, like, it's so funny that that... I would never have guessed that they had been thinking about that that early on. Yeah, not... I wouldn't have either. Yeah. Um, last piece, obviously, like, I feel like I have to mention this book does not speak to sexual harassment at all. Uh, we know now that, like, sexual harassment was rampant through Blizzard. Most of the incidents that were brought up in different lawsuits of sexual assault and harassment that happened at Blizzard happened after the subject of this book. Like, most of them are in the mid to late 2000s. It mentions people, like you said, of, like, Alex... Afrasiabi, who like sexually harassed and assaulted yeah. people, um, but this book's accounting is like before many of those incidents. You can see the seeds that I have talked about many times of like a toxic work culture where that is very much like a boys' club um, that has absolutely no boundary between 
personal and professional lives. Like the idea of like an HR department in this environment is like it's antithetical to it. Um, so it is, I think John is unwilling to see it. I mean, he also mentions, he gave an interview to Fortune when, when the harassment was coming out. John was asked for comment by a Fortune reporter. Um, and they asked, you know, uh, amongst the different, um, wow, uh, amongst the different lawsuits and uh, amongst the complaints, they often described like alcohol fueled benders that people would go on, get like hammered and start groping female employees and things like that. Um, and he, they like asked him about these types of things. And he was like, I never experienced that. Most, uh, things that I went to were fairly boring corporate affairs. He also in this book describes launch parties that resulted in people like throwing up and needing to be taken <laughs> to receive medical attention. He he describes like at random times they took the entire team to the entire team to to Vegas to un, quote unwind for a number of days. Like this is again like I think John Stats is not an empathetic person at all. And I do not I also think he is not a particularly I think he is an unintelligent person when it comes to like social dynamics and is not does not have the capacity to see why these types of things would be it didn't get out of hand for him. And he didn't see any harassment happening, so, like, he can't speak to it. But it's not that hard, if you're not an idiot, to, like, imagine how these situations go badly if you're not exactly one of these people. And as you become bigger, you employ people who are not exactly these people. And so it, it is, uh, you know, again, it doesn't mention harassment. I wouldn't expect it to, again, the all of the complaints mentioned in these lawsuits happen during times that are not spoken about in the book or not represented yeah. in the book. Um, but his like unwillingness to acknowledge that this culture that he loved so much could have downsides for people who were not him speaks again to his like, like him. Uh, yeah. Or not very like him um, speaks to the fact that like he is not nearly as smart as he thinks he is. Yep, and I think that's definitely worth mentioning in the context of this book because it's yeah, it's not like we mentioned at the top and in the when I pitched it to you, like it is a it is a very biased interpretation from his point of view of the development cycle of WoW, and so you know it's yeah. it's just not going to include stuff like that. So. And I do, to be fair, I I believe yes. him that he didn't experience or see this stuff. Like, I don't think he's lying. I just think, like, I just think he's an idiot. <laughs> it's just not, I, you know, like, I just think he doesn't have the emotional or social awareness to have noticed when situations were starting to get uncomfortable. Yeah. And, like, again, this the environment that he describes attracts the type of people who would not have the social awareness to notice these yeah. types of things. Um, so it's not shocking to me. But that's all I had. Those those are those are the big takeaways. Um, the only other thing that I thought was interesting just from a, the design point of view, uh, which 
you know, may not mean a whole lot to our audience here if they're not familiar, but you will be. Um, just the idea that when they went into this, so he he primarily focused on creating dungeons and um, yep. them having no idea of how long a dungeon should be, uh, which was very <laughs> evident in the size of some of the original dungeons. But even you think about um, there's two early dungeons in the game for low-level characters that you get to fairly early called the Dead Mines and the Wailing Caverns. They're not particularly <laughs> long dungeons once you get into them, but they have a very long like, lead-up system of caverns to both of them to get to the start of the actual like group content dungeon, as it were. Um, but as far as I understand... The original intent was that that whole entire entrance area was also to be part of the dungeon. So they would have been absolutely yeah. massive by current standards of how they develop things in a WoW. And so uh, it's it's just interesting to um, read things like that about them truly having no idea how big like they should make these things or how big players are going to want these things to be. And then just kind of like mm. having to make their best guess at it. Um, yeah, it, it really is like there was little plan. It really was like a bunch of dudes in a room just like guessing <laughs> things and then like trying it and deciding what they thought after yep. they tried it. Which again, like this is how you wind up with an audience that looks exactly like your development <laughs> team. Is because like they are, they are the developers. They are the initial testers. They are the players. Like it. That's, it's it's so funny and it is so. I cannot even imagine. So for like the audience, Wailing Caverns, for example, that probably took an hour, an hour and a half to go through in mm -hmm. Classic. Like assuming you aren't super experienced, know exactly what you're doing. Like nowadays. And that that is not including this piece Cody mentioned of like they must they cut it out or like it, it's shorter than yeah. they initially planned. Dun the sweet spot for dungeons is about twenty to thirty minutes is roughly how long most dungeons are in WoW. So the idea that Wayland Caverns might have been a two to two and a half hour experience would have been truly. Wish there miserable. was a dungeon like that, like uh, Blackrock Depths was yes. like a giant maze of a dungeon that took forever to go through. That basically, I think universally is not liked uh, to for that reason specifically. That everyone would prefer to go through like the shorter, like l max limit one hour type dungeon, unless you're doing like a raid where yeah. you're expected to be in there for multiple hours. Yeah, but at the end of the day, if you're doing something new for the first time. There's kind of, you got to test yeah. and learn. And like, if they were good at anything, if, if the team structure allowed them to be good at anything, it was that of like, let's try a thing and just like try it and iterate. And even if iterating means we scrap it entirely, like they were given the time and freedom both by Blizzard and by like the heads of the project to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I had, you had touched on like the different images and stuff that are included in the book. And the ones that I, some of the ones yeah. I really enjoyed were, um, I can't remember his name. I think it was Bill Petrus, 
was an artist on mm-hmm. the team that one of his jobs was for each of the different zones in the game he would do like a color study um, and create art uh, about what they thought that zone should generally look like and um, I just found it really interesting seeing those color studies that he did printed in the book um, and seeing how they translated to the game. Um, I or like stuff like that. I found really interesting too in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It was, it's super interesting to see how that stuff started and how like a beautiful color study translates into pixels yeah. at that time, which was often, uh, <laughs> they were limited by the tools of their time. That was, that yeah. was pretty clear. A little bit. Yep. Um, but I think that's pretty much about I ha- all I had for the rest of my notes, too. So uh, I think all that's left is, Tim, uh, what is your verdict? Would you give John Statz's The Wow Diary a yaw or a nah? Um, it's a complicated question. At the end of the day, I would give it a yaw. Like, I enjoyed my time reading this book. I think it's it was super fascinating for, like all of the reasons that I detailed of like a window into this sort of culture of game development that like I do. John clearly thinks that like Blizzard was really like caught lightning in a bottle with this team and this project. And like, but I think this culture was not in any way. It's very much how people describe game yeah. development. Um, and which to anyone outside is, the industry is not in a positive light. Right. Uh, so, like, I think over the course of reading this book, it uh, confirmed all the negative stereotypes I have about game developers <laughs> of this time of, like, their inability to see anything beyond their project and, like, this, what you imagine when you imagine a game developer on a game like this seems like is exactly the truth. Uh, I, I came away with a more negative opinion of John uh, Stats as a person that I <laughs> thought I would. Um, but like the book itself is fat as somebody who, I don't think I would recommend it to somebody who yeah. like didn't play. Wow. I think a lot of it would not, I don't think it's, I think it's too long and it's too in the weeds, but like not in the weeds. It's like, I don't think it's technical enough to be super interesting just from a developer standpoint. Yes. If you don't care about wow. And I think it's too in the weeds. If you just care about, video games but don't care about wow but for like me who's kind of in that sweet spot of like half between those things but also have like a long history with wow i i found it to be really interesting uh, again both about the game and about like what it says about what game development used to be like and what uh what blizzard used to be like in those days and what it says Mm -hmm. about blizzard today Well, cool. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm glad that you generally enjoyed your time with it. Because yeah, I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure going into it how how you would feel about it in the end. Because I know that, um, you know, a lot of the reason that this book was interesting to me was the development side of things. But um, certainly for someone who didn't play WoW, I don't think the book just isn't written for them. <laughs> Um, it's too dry. 
it's too it's too that that like textbook piece you got to care about yeah, the subject or even someone who just like casually yeah. played wow for a little bit but like considering you have yeah. played it you've played wow for a long time and at some points like quite in depth um you know i i figured you might find it at least the those portions of it at least somewhat interesting enough to like finish the read through of it while also getting all of the uh, interesting people stuff from the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think I got I got more interesting people stuff than John Stas <laughs> meant to put in the book. Um, but but you know that's that's all right. Uh, I I don't think I took from it what he would want me to take from it, but what I took from it was uh, made it a super fascinating, interesting. Well, read. that's I, I would expect nothing less, but for uh, between your and my differences <laughs> in uh, our preferences for media, so definitely tracks. But glad to hear yep. you got something out of it that you that enjoyed. That makes sense for sure. It's time to pass it over to Cozy for the middle segment. Cozy, what do you have for us this episode? Uh, so I have another uh, Cozy's rants. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's the only thing I can think to call this. It's just me ranting about a thing that's annoying to me. Uh, slash I just want to talk about. So I have uh, been experimenting with a couple different audio apps that I wanted to talk about because <laughs> I uh, just think it's interesting. So I tried, I have been a Spotify premium oh boy. purchaser since like college, since I would, ha- since Spotify was really like around. I bought Spotify premium, paid the t- whatever it was a month uh, forever, always was fine with Spotify. Um, I recently got a free trial for Apple Music, so I was like, well, I might as well try Apple Music, because I've never tried anything but Spotify. It's already, like, I don't know, like, Spotify's fine, but, like, maybe there's other options. Uh, the biggest reason being, I could bundle my, like, all my Apple stuff together and essentially, like, save money on all the things I'm spending on. And get, like, an Apple One subscription. And I would get Apple Arcade, which has, like, iPad apps I'm interested in. Basically, without paying extra money. So, I really wanted to like Apple Music. And generally, Apple Music is fine for things like making playlists of songs I like, saving music... Generally, like, you know, it works the same as Spotify for, like, saving songs or, like, making my own playlist or saving albums or just, like, having a library of music in there. Um, I think it's generally... I didn't play a ton with, like... Spotify, it's really hard to add your own custom music, whereas, like, Apple Music, since, like, integrates with iTunes, I think is easier to do that kind of stuff. But it's still similar to Spotify. You have, like, hook it up to your computer and download the file do whatever if you have like a cd you actually own that's not on apple music you want to put into this um so like it's still not that easy it's kind of similar um the thing so i really really wanted like apple music uh the thing that i kept like brushing up against that was so difficult in apple music was that their playlists are bad (laughs) yeah Um, they're awful they're just really awful. And I like I think I took for granted how good Spotify's playlists were because like 
Like their generated playlists or like the the way they're structured after you create them? No, like their generated playlists. Okay. Like the so I was uh like hanging out with people for my bachelorette party. We were trying to find playlists to listen to and I'm just trying to like search like just bachelorette playlists. Like people make these. Spotify makes these. Like there's you search on Spotify and there's like fifty different playlists with different vibes and different like descriptors so you can kind of like go through and find one that like fits what you want whether you want like a really upbeat like fun party one or like a chill bachelorette like Spotify has like you can pick from like 50 playlists they come up with an easy search Spotify or uh, Apple Music has one playlist for like anything you search so you search like bachelorette and there's like one bachelorette party playlist and that's it and it's like the the Apple Music curated list and it may or may not be the vibe you're looking for. And so like if it's not the vibe you're looking for, then it's like, well, here's this one playlist I listen to. Uh, I guess that's it. I don't like this one. So now what? Like now what do I do? Like literally nothing. I have to go find like find different search parameters to find the playlist I want. But like I could just go to Spotify and there's 50 that show up with one search term. And I didn't know how, like, bad it would be until I just, like, was just trying to find playlists with, like, different vibes. And it's just, like, really hard on Apple Music because it's got one playlist. And once you've listened to that one, you're like, well, I guess I'm done listening to that uh, thing. Yeah. Uh, did you, Are you aware that we could sign up for a Duo Spotify account for $15 a month? I was aware of that because I just went to resubscribe my Apple Music uh, <laughs> subscription is almost up. And so I was going to go resubscribe to Spotify Premium. So I was going to talk to you about should we get a Duo account? I see. Just to really do our housekeeping on yeah. the podcast. <laughs> we should have just talked about this before because this would have been you wouldn't have had to deal with Apple Music, which is awful. I have such strong feelings about it. I don't like the interface. I You are correct. The playlists are terrible. I feel like it's slow. I, I hate that. You're more of a title guy, yeah. I love title, yeah. I'm huge <laughs> into title. Real talk, I did uh, briefly subscribe to title because there was a time where it was the only streaming service where you could listen to Beyonce's Lemonade mm. album. Ah. Uh, so I subscribed just to listen to Lemonade until now that's on Spotify too. So I canceled my title subscription. Yeah. I, I mean, can't imagine quitting Spotify because all my playlists are saved there. Like, I have too okay, yeah, much. Okay, but I found a app that for free, you had to okay. do a playlist by playlist, would Ugh. migrate your stuff over. <laughs> or you could probably pay it. I just wanted it for free. Like, I had to do a playlist at a time, but it would migrate the whole thing. And I have, like, six playlists I actually listen to, so it was not a big deal for me right. to switch them over. It took, like, a minute per playlists. playlist. Yeah, well, I don't listen to music, so it, that was not as big of a deal for me. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, that part, honestly, that app worked really well. It was pretty painless to just like move everything over. Um, but yeah, now I'm going to move it back, I guess. Uh, so yeah, they, or I was looking for like, I don't know, we're planning a wedding. Clearly I've already mentioned a bachelorette party. Uh, the, I was trying to find like music to walk down the aisle to, cause we have to apparently pick that. Um, the or like just any in like wedding music and again spotify would come up with like 12 to 15 different playlists of all these things or you could just like that you could look through apple music one playlist i'm like how how is there one playlist it's got like 
15 songs on it. Like, that can't be all of the music you have that's out there for this. It's crazy. Um, okay, I have one other audio app drama that I have to talk about. Um, Great. It's podcast app related. Of course. I of assume. Course. Uh, we all know I have strong opinions about podcast apps because I've talked about it on this yep. podcast before. I don't like Spotify uh, because it's limited capabilities, particularly with playlists. Um, I used to use Apple Podcasts. I was kind of fine with Apple Podcasts, but it kept crashing on me. And I don't like that the only speed options for listening to podcasts are 1 and 1.25 and 1.5. I just don't think it's fine-grained oh enough. Um Jeez. That's a really it's not fine grain enough. I need more nuance in my podcast speed. Um, but I have been using Overcast app for like years, and I really generally like the Overcast app. I think most ninety percent of the features it has are exactly what I want. I, the only thing I wish it had that it doesn't really have is like history, like actually like a how time stats like Spotify does at the end of the year because I wish I had that for my podcast listening because I'm just curious but like I can take or leave that that's not a huge deal breaker for me it's just like it would be nice to have um but recently Overcast started like just crashing on me and being really slow Mm. to the point that I'm like debating switching to a different app because I I like I will try to click on something and it'll take like two seconds to like register or it won't register. I have to like click on it six times to get it to like play a podcast. Or if I like get a podcast to play and switch apps, it just like crashes. And it's like, this is why I switched to Overcast in the first place because the Apple podcast app used to do that to me. That it would just like stop playing every like once in a while when I was like trying to play a podcast. But like Overcast is doing that now, but like worse than Apple podcast ever did. So I'm looking into other options, but I'm like so upset because nothing else has the playlist options Overcast has, which is why I like it. But I cannot deal with how much it's crashing right now. <sighs> um, so I'm debating switching podcast apps and it's making me sad. Uh, yeah, it's I've only tough ever times used one. Uh, I, I guess if you, uh, if you don't count being forced to listen to one on Spotify because it's the only place it existed. Right. Uh, I've only used Podcast Addict, which is only available for Android, so I am of no help to you here. <laughs> yeah, and I just yeah. use Apple Podcasts because I don't mind the rough grain of the uh, podcast speed options, so it's uh, it's tough. Well, part of it, too, is, like, now, again, I've used Overcast forever. I do have really, like, I've, like, used their playlist settings let you do a lot of custom things where, like, I have playlists where it's, like, it'll download these 10 podcasts, but it'll only keep this many episodes. And then I also have, like, these 50 episodes added to that playlist. Yes, am I that many episodes behind on my podcast? And should I maybe delete some of them? Unclear. Um, Is that why the app is crashing? Also unclear. Um... (laughs) So I cannot imagine trying to migrate that from an app, one app to a new app. <laughs> I already did it once when I switched to Overcast, and I do not want to do it again. Might just need to catch up, then switch. Ha. <laughs> I will never catch up. <laughs> uh, 
so yeah that's where we're at that's all I just wanted to talk about how um I can never listen to audio in the way I really want to listen to it <laughs> which is at a very precise speed mostly <laughs> yes does does overcast 1.15 uh, you might have said this and I missed it does overcast let you set it per podcast or as an overall speed for all podcasts both okay so there's generally there's like uh you can set your setting for like um everything and you can change it whenever or like really easily it's all like any podcast you can access that setting it's like not like buried in a menu or anything um and you can like flip a switch that makes it so that your speed for any podcast can be custom so if i have a podcast for instance that's like about music where i actually want it to be at one time speed i can say just for that podcast play that at one time speed or for instance, podcasts I listen to with Tim, I have to put on one time <laughs> speed because he will, refuses to listen to them at the higher speed. So for those, I have them set to like a different setting. Gotcha. Yeah, because I was gonna say because my the one I use lets you set it per per podcast as well, but I didn't know if that's a a feature generally uh, across all podcast apps or or not. Uh, yeah, I, again, it varies via, by a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Apple, you can, like, you just set it generally. Like, I don't think you can customize it for each pod. Like, I don't think it remembers your settings for each podcast, if I remember right. Yeah. And now, I've I've never gone in and set it differently for a podcast. I just know that the capability is there. <laughs> yeah. I Every podcast has its own custom settings, and again, I would hate to lose that, but I also want my podcast app to function, and that's where I'm, like, really running into problems right now. (laughs) Well, Cozy, I'm sorry to hear that you're having so many uh, audio issues. Hopefully, this makes it to the Overcast dev team, and they they get on that crash fix for you. Hopefully. But uh, thanks for voicing your complaints for the middle segment today uh yeah i mean if shouting them into the void fixes them i would be thrilled (laughs) you never know crazier things have happened and now we're on to the final segment tim all that's left is to hear your pitch so what do you have for me this week Great. Cody, we've talked about it a little bit in the past, but can you give us all a refresher on what types of music you do and don't like? Uh, um, I mean, generally speaking, I mostly enjoy most music that is not mm-hmm. modern country. Um, sure. I mean... I think I think that makes sense. That's what we've basically talked about. I just yeah. want to make sure I got it right. So I have three modern country <laughs> albums to pitch to you today. Um, Great. Awesome. I, I Here's the thing. Here's the, I'm just waiting for the relax. point where this is a goof. But it's not going it's to be. It's not a goof. <laughs> I... I also don't really like country. I don't... I would never listen to, like, country radio. Yes. I don't... When you think of like stadium country, it is not my vibe for about a dozen different reasons. However, over the course of listening to a lot of music, I was talking about how many playlists I have before, I have stumbled across a small number of country artists that I do legitimately like that I think if you can open your mind and just be... 
be open. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm really going to have to pry it open, but... Uh... I, I believe that you will enjoy these. Or this will be funny. One way or another, I'm going to make you listen to three country albums. Uh, I have good news, though. One is mostly pop, and one is three songs long. So you, uh, this shouldn't be too too difficult. Ooh, um, is, uh, is the one that's only three songs long? Because I can only think of one other album that's three songs long. Is it written by a former uh, member of this podcast? <laughs> it is not. Yes, fun fact for any listeners. Kyle, former co-host, does have a country music album EP that is three songs long. Uh, it is according to me, no, that is not one gotcha. of the ones that I will be pitching to Fair you today. I know, I know it has some uh, notoriety for being life-changing for some people, so... It does, it does. No, I have a few other ones that I, that are will also be okay, life-changing. Perfect. Um, we'll start with that one. The the first, it's not really an album. It is a collection called Our Vinyl Sessions by a musician named Tyler Childers. Uh, have you ever heard of Tyler Childers? Nope. Probably not. Okay, Tyler Childers is a bluegrass folk country musician from Kentucky. Um, uh, <laughs> he... Is his like parents grew up, his mom was a nurse, and his dad grew up quite literally like working in a coal mine, uh, in Kentucky. Um, and it's just good. These are vinyl sessions, are it's an acoustic EP, it's like him playing three of his songs, like live acoustic in a studio. Think like, uh, like The Current does those like EP sessions with different artists and things like that or like tiny Tiny desk Desk npr kind of yeah but no audience no there's not like a live audience it's just just like him in a studio like acoustic playing acoustic versions of three of his songs i think he the reason i like all three of these artists is i just think the songwriting is really good like the the songwriting across all three doesn't like, it plays into tropes of the genre, like any genre has tropes, like there are pop tropes, like there are rap tropes, like there are any, like it plays into some amount of country tropes, but the songs themselves feel really authentic and feel, the, the thing that makes any music good to me is when you can tell that this was the right person to make this, that it's not, this is not something that you could just like give to someone else, it, it is like, something that has like come from a person to be transmitted. And I think all three of these things do that really well. Uh, Tyler Childers is, is my favorite. This has been like fall asleep music for me for a really long time. Um, and it's just good. The songwriting is good. He has other good songs too, but I think this simple like three song EP is the my favorites of his, and it uh, limits the amount of country music you have to listen to if you hate it. So, yeah, I kind go. of assumed going into it, you know, I can joke all I want that I'm going to hate these or whatever, but, like, I when when I say modern country, the same thing as you, You're thinking I'm thinking like of, like, Jason what is Aldean, on like... country radio stations locally yeah. in my area right now, where uh, I can with a hundred percent certainty guarantee that you would not be praising their songwriting as heavily as you're praising. (laughs) And I also can, Uh I know that that is not the music that you would be pitching beyond this podcast. Uh, because I also know your music taste to some extent and know that you also wouldn't be interested in that. So uh. no, I don't (laughs) like most country music and I don't like that, but I do like these. So I, I think that's one, this, this one is like my, my favorite, 
Um, the second one is one that I think should be up your alley. Cody, have you heard Casey Busgraves before? So I think I've heard like a song Probably. here and there, but I've never sat down and like listened to an album. Sure. So Casey Musgraves is very like pop country, very like hat really is like that intersection of like people have Taylor Swift is like the most talked about, like started very country and then slowly transitioned until the point that she is just like a pop artist completely. Um, Casey Musgraves has managed to like continue to walk a line and like within her albums given songs sound more country and given songs sound more pop e but like when i was reviewing carly ray jepsen albums and i was thinking to myself like oh especially the second one i liked i liked the emotion b-sides but the more recent one that you had pitched when i was listening to it i was kind of like i kind of would just rather be listening to casey musgraves if this was the vibe yeah. i'm looking for um, so I am pitching you Starcrossed by Casey Musgraves, which is her, I think, most recent album. It came out in 2021. I'm not, again, I'm not, these are all albums I've like stumbled upon and I don't even know how or why, <laughs> but I just sort of like found and they've imprinted themselves on me. Um, it's, it's very pop country. She wrote it as she was going through a divorce. So it's really kind of like all about her divorce. She didn't have like a crazy messy divorce just like a regular regular you know, standard <laughs> run of the mill yeah. divorce i guess um but just like uh and it's just good it's it's like pop it's pop music this is the what i feel most conf i would be surprised if you yeah. don't like it it's very poppy it's just got a little bit of country uh but it's it's more poppy than country i, I will think. say real quick tangent Speaking of Carly Rae Jepsen, yes. I'll touch on it more when sure. we get to the end of the year when we do our recap of uh, <laughs> well, Best media? Uh, media that we were anticipating. Um, okay, sure. I think one of mine was uh, a Carly Rae Jepsen B-side, uh, which did come out this year. Yeah, uh, I do think it is better than the album that I pitched you, uh, but also much sure, weirder than the album that I pitched you. So... Uh, leans much more into like some uh, indie sounds similar to music that I probably listened to like in college of like lesser known indie music type sound but uh mm -hmm. that that's all I had <laughs> uh, I'll I'll talk sure, about it more sure. when we get to end of year Interesting maybe it'll get pitched to me mm, one of these days depending on how long the writer strike goes um uh Cool. So that is the second one. And then I just have one more album, which is Zach Bryan by Zach Bryan. Uh, Zach Bryan right now is like a very up and coming country music star. Like he's he's fairly new and fairly young, but has like in become increasingly popular. Um, he is he's from Oklahoma. He was like in the Navy and then just sort of like stumbled upon a country music career. Uh, it's modern country, but it is not stadium. Like the songwriting remains good. I've seen a lot of Zach Bryan being compared to Phoebe Bridgers. Like it's a very sort of like confessional. It's not like necessarily uh depressing in the way that a lot of phoebe bridges music i mean some some songs are but like 
because country fundamentally like has its roots in blues like like real country is that is what the root is for a lot of it and like it's it's super int- it's the only like modern country i really like tyler childers is like a very old school very blue grassy like when you imagine like country around a campfire like cowboys around a campfire like real authentic not stadium yeah. country uh, Zach Bryan manages to do sort of like a pop country thing without sacrificing like good, meaningful, thoughtful songwriting and like good. It sounds good and modern without being vapid <laughs> in a way that I find a lot of country mm-hmm. music. Um, and so I'm shocked that I like it, to be honest. I don't even remember why I started listening to it. It's because he has a song called Something in the Orange that went, like, really viral from his first uh, album that is really good that I really liked. Then he came out with this one. I was like, I've never actually listened to an album of his, so, like, maybe I'll give it a shot. And I've been listening to it nonstop hmm. for, like, a week. It just came out in, like, August. Okay. Um, and so it's, it's very new, uh, but it's great. And I don't know if you will like it at all or not, but I'm very into it. So you have to listen to it. Uh, I don't know if I will either, but we will find out together. (laughs) We'll find out one way or another. All right, that's going to do it for us this week for our episode of Hard Sell. Thanks for listening. Remember to drop us a rating and a review wherever you find your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter, uh, at hard sell show uh, if you've got more ideas for pitches for us you can send us an email at hard sell show at gmail.com uh, Tim I believe you still are streaming with Kyle on Twitch at hard sell show is that correct that is correct Saturdays uh, we've been kind of inconsistent with the schedule but we're gonna do our best to be more consistent as cozy mentioned we were planning for a wedding so our uh, weekends have been a little hectic, but we're going to do our best to, to be consistent. Saturdays, we're streaming Baldur's Gate 3 at 12 p.m. We just had a very eventful session at the time of recording this where we uh, triggered a fight in the middle of a goblin camp by accident and succeeded by pushing the leader into a hole over and over <laughs> again. So it's it's been a good time. Very nice. 12 p.m. Pacific time. Oh, Pacific time. Yes, good to mention that. Um. But that's going to do it for us. So until next time, we'll catch you on the flippity flop. Catch you on the flippity flop. Mm-hmm.